I have the honor today of speaking with Dr. Mike Wesch about experimenting and learning new things, transforming our teaching, and becoming the student. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so that we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and I'm thrilled today to have the honor of speaking with Mike Wesch. He's been called the prophet of an education revolution by the Kansas City Star and also referred to as the explainer by Wired Magazine. As you'll hear in the episode, he's received the highly coveted U.S. Professor of the Year Award from the Carnegie Foundation, and even since receiving that award, has described his own teaching as perhaps even limited back then, and he's going to really tell us about some of the ways his own teaching has transformed in this episode. After two years of studying the implications of writing on a remote indigenous culture in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, he turned his attention to the effects of social media and digital technology on global society and education. If you have not seen his videos, you are in for a treat. And that would be one of the things I would tell you to do. Probably not right now. You can listen. And then as soon as you stop the episode, go to teachingandhighered.com slash 118. And that will take you over to his YouTube channel. He has videos that have been viewed over 20 million times, translated into over 20 languages, and are frequently featured at international film festivals and major academic conferences worldwide. I have really been a big admirer of his for years. His work has meant a lot to me personally as a teacher, and I'm just absolutely so thrilled to get to have a conversation with him and share some of his challenging ideas with you today. Mike, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Great, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I have been such a, I don't know if fan is, fan feels like not even a big enough word. I have admired your work for years now, and I'm just so thrilled to have you joining us. And one of the things that really intrigued me as I sort of got back re-familiarizing myself with your work is your ongoing quest to become the student. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your recent times in doing that as it relates to drawing. Oh, drawing. Drawing was maybe one of the breakthrough moments, really, because drawing's always been really hard for me. I was a pretty good student, so I was kind of like this, you know, A student. And really, I was one of those students who got frustrated when I didn't get an A, you know, and, and drawing was my B. <laughs> You know, and I, it's almost embarrassing to say that because I don't really want to be the guy who just always got A's, but that's that's how it was for me. I, I was a good student. I always got A's and I was pretty anxious about grades. And so I really did get a B in drawing in college and it was my only B when I graduated and I'm not good at it. So 
to take that on, like I started that about three years ago, that was an intentional thing. I just thought, you know, I'm just, let's pick something that's hard for me so that I can remember what it's like to learn something hard. And it was immediately enlightening, not just in terms of how it was hard, but also in the sense of how quick growth happened and how exciting it was to grow and how exciting it was to grow and get better without somebody constantly looming over your shoulders telling you what great it was. So that was a big turning point for me in thinking about how I should be assessing my students and really sparked a lot of reflection in in me and in how I should approach my students. Did you have someone in the role of teacher or would would you describe this more as a self-taught sort of adventure? No, it was self-taught except that I really quickly got interested in animation and to learn animation. And I started, you know, reading a lot online, watching videos online. So there's a dozen teachers out there that don't even know me at all. who just posted videos and I watched all their videos and uh, learned how to animate. So I guess a lot of people would say that's self-taught, but I mean, there are a lot of people put a lot of time into putting those videos up and I learned a great deal from those. That's the other big insight I got from this was that when you're really interested in something and you go after it, there are all kinds of people all around you that sort of just come out of the woodwork who are interested in the same thing or can relate in some way and they give you a little tip here or there. So, you know, it wasn't just on YouTube, but every once in a while you'd be just even at a party or something, start talking about it and people would be like, oh yeah, you should check this out or check this out or look at this thing that I did and here's how I did it. And I just felt really good to be sort of moving in the right direction, not worrying about being the best at something, just just knowing that you're getting better and having a whole bunch of people all around you who are also excited about it. And it's, it struck me like, okay, this is, this is what a good learning environment looks like and how can I bring that into my classroom? And it's amazing. Like I thought I was a good teacher three years ago. By that time, I'd won the National Professor of the Year. You know, so people were telling me I was a good teacher. But boy, my teaching is so different three years after that. And I think what it comes down to is I think I was a good performer and that it's easy to sort of get prizes for that. But real teaching is really hard. And, you know, setting up a learning environment is really hard. Setting up a learning environment that works for multiple types of learners and uh, people who are at different places in their learning journey is, is really hard. And, and I think it's a lifetime practice, you know, and I think I've, I've come a long way in the last few years by becoming a learner and I'm almost obsessed with it now. <laughs> so like I try to learn something new constantly to just constantly remind myself of what that's like. What are some of the other things that you've gone back and have taken the role of learner in some other topics or skills? I started doing handstands, uh, and there's a video out there of me doing handstands for my class. I started learning how to swim. I've never been a good swimmer, and I lost a good friend to a drowning accident when I was 17. I've had a lot of fear of water. So I've always picked things that were really hard and things that maybe bring out fears inside me. And I'm actually sitting right next to a violin right now that I just started playing for the first time today. I had my first lesson today. And uh, one of my students came in and let me borrow her violin. So this comes back to how my teaching has changed. But 
I have these core lessons that I'm trying to teach and I kind of identified what these lessons are. And then I realized that I could, instead of just having tests and one of these lessons, I could have the students practice these things through challenges. And so instead of assignments, they have challenges. So there's essentially 10 lessons in the class and then 10 challenges. Mm-hmm. And we're on the third challenge right now. And the third challenge is to try something new for 30 days. And so my new thing, and I do all the assignments myself. So my new thing is learning the violin. So that's what I'm doing right now. Sometimes when people get introduced to the idea of, I hate to even, it seems like an insult to the magnificent way you've, you've just described it, but the creative types of assignments that aren't the traditional ones. We've had some guests on the show talk about that in the past. And sometimes the hesitation, and I can, I can sort of see this, although I think we can push through it, is that they're more difficult maybe to track or, or maybe more difficult to know whether or not the student actually really did what you asked them to, you know, or they, did they really try something new for 30 days or did they put it off? And how have you grappled with that? Or is that even, has that been a concern of yours when you've started to evolve this, this way of giving assignments? Well, this, it's a really tricky thing, but it, some of it comes down to your core philosophy of grading. And if your core philosophy of grading, for whatever reason, is to sort people out into the best and the worst, it is a tricky road to travel. Mm -hmm. If you don't care about sorting people, then this actually turns out to be the best kind of assignment because basically students get out of it, whatever they put into it and their learning is going to be, is going to reflect what they put into it. And in that sense, the grade almost doesn't matter. And trying to inspire my students to want to learn. I set up these 10 challenges that are kind of intrinsically interesting and If you do them, you almost can't help but learn by doing it. And the grading then becomes a lot easier. Now, these are just for my class. They might not work for everybody else's. But just to give you an example of these, one would be the first assignment, very low-level assignment, but it's just to get people warmed up, is to talk to a stranger. And then you, you try to engage them in what we call big talk. Instead of small talk, you you engage a stranger in some big talk, like questions about really big stuff. And then you take a picture with them, take a selfie with them, and you post it along with your story about that encounter. And I have like 450 students, so you you get 450 stories. Just by doing it, that is kind of good enough for the grade. There's a lot of assignments, so I don't have to be super careful about, okay, that was an A and that was a C and all that kind of stuff, because by the end of it, there are so many assignments, so many of these little things that they're doing that they'll mostly get sorted out based on how much effort they put into these things and whether or not they do them at all. I think that behind all of this is a really big discussion about what grading is really all about. And I'm not going to champion one ideology over another or one philosophy over another. Instead, I take the philosophy that grading can play a different role depending on the course. And in intro level courses, where 99% of the people are not going to become anthropologists. It's an anthropology class. The grading philosophy is going to be different than if I'm in a a senior level class with 10 students who are all going to go to graduate school. And I need to make sure that they know anthropological theory and know how to apply it. I'm just going to take a different philosophy. In the upper level class, I am going to kind of use the sorting mechanism (laughs) as a motivator, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to tell people exactly where they stand. 
but I also have a slightly different philosophy there, which is you're never really just a C student. Like I may have sorted you into the C category early on, but I actually tend not to use the word C or that letter at all. I, I, instead, I just say, you're not at the A level yet. And then I help them get to that A level. That's how I run an upper level class. The lower level classes, there's so many students. It would be too hard to give a lot of feedback to 450 people, obviously. So that's where I'm trying to create a system where the assignment itself is just intrinsically worth doing. And hopefully everybody does it so that they can grow through it. You said students get out of it what they put into it. And I think sometimes phrases like that almost get lost. As, as I watch your videos and I, I listen to your podcast and really have admired so much of what you do, I want to pause after every sentence and go, did you hear what he just said? And I, I kind of wanted to do that when you said that because I can just instantly when you said those words, I had just my mind fill with examples of students that really put something special into an assignment and how today they are in a job that is directly related back to that assignment somehow. I'd love if you talk a little bit more maybe of some examples that you have when you say students get out of it, what they put into it. Maybe give us a few examples that come into your mind when you talk about that. Well, there's so many. And I think what matters when students graduate is how they've changed, not just their GPA. Mm -hmm. And the thing is their GPA might get them an interview. It might get them into the short stack in a graduate school application thing. But what's going to actually get them in, get them the job, get them to the next job is who they are. And the students who are actually learning for the sake of learning to improve themselves and not just learning to get the grade are the ones who are going to be the person who years down the line is is doing what they want to do and, and sort of being an author of their own life. Whereas those students who are just trying to get the grade are always going to be looking for the next set of instruction mm-hmm. and looking for the next routine that they can master. And they're going to be really good at routines, but that's not going to take them very far in today's world. I think today's world really demands this capacity to, to take on new problems that have never been seen before that are not so routine. I remember one student who she was telling me the story about when she was eight years old, she was in the back seat of her parents' car and, and they were doing flashcards. Her mom was doing flashcards and she was sitting next to her six-year-old brother and her six-year-old brother was beating her on all the flashcards. And she just decided at that moment that she wasn't smart. Mm. And she went on into high school and was, you know, just played the role of the pretty girl who wasn't smart. And she came to college and still the pretty girl that wasn't smart. And she just wanted to like recreate herself and, and be something different, you know? And so she came to me one day and she told me the story. And then she ended that story by saying, you know, Dr. Wesh, I've been faking it so long. I don't even know who I am anymore. Like she'd been faking being the, the pretty girl who wasn't smart. And all the while, like having these really deep thoughts that she just wasn't bothering to share. So then, you know, in my classes, she was just truly being herself and engaging in the assignments with all of her capacities and allowing those assignments to change her. You know, they were, I think all of us as faculty, when we design these assignments, we design them so that people can learn from them. I don't think assessment and sorting is normally 
very high on our minds <laughs> or maybe it is for some people, but for me, it's always like, Oh, this will be great. This will force them to think about these things and maybe, you know, force them to, to think differently about this aspect of who they are, maybe open them up to this, to this new idea that allows them to reframe the way they see the world, all that kind of stuff. And she was allowing those things to happen for herself again and again through all these assignments. And, you know, before you knew it, she really was a very different person. She went on to co-create a, a video that made it to a major film festival in France. She started her own business. I could go on and on, just this long list of accomplishments. This all comes from an eight-year-old who thought that she wasn't smart. Mm. And I could tell story after story like that. You just described such a significant transformation in one of your students. I'd love if we could talk a little bit about a transformation in your teaching. And I love the video that you have posted. I'm going to play a little bit of it now. This is from a video you created called The Sleeper. And you describe it as a true story about a student who slept in my classes for years. I'm only going to play the first part of it and then just talk a little bit about how you have transformed in your teaching. I guess I should say talk a little bit more. I'm pretty sensitive to student reactions in my classes. For better or worse, I really feed off of them. I had one student who was just always sleeping. If he wasn't sleeping, he was giving me this strange, dreadful look. And here I was, armed with a dazzling HD screen with 2,073,600 points of light and a laser pointer, and I just couldn't get through to him. Actually, I had four screens. <laughs> I mean, I tried everything. And the more I threw myself into it, the more it hurt. Every time I saw him, I couldn't help but think, I must be really boring. Nothing I do or say matters. This class is meaningless. I'm wasting everybody's time. Sometimes I just get mad. And who does he think he is? One day I just had enough, and I was just ready to... I don't know. And I went up to him and I said, Do you want to go to lunch? I asked him why he's sleeping. I would really encourage that people go to the show notes, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 118, so you can finish the end of the story. But we're going to give a little spoiler alert here, because Mike, I'd love if you just share how the story ends, because it is certainly not what I thought it was going to end with when I started watching it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So we go to lunch and I just ask him, you know, straight up, like, why do you sleep in my classes? And he started describing his addiction to games. And before long, he was saying, you know, it's not just that I play games, it's also that I make them. And he started describing this game that he made that's on hexagon cards with these mythological figures. And, you know, you sort of line them up and create different power relationships based on how they're lined up. But what really struck me was that he knew more about mythology than I did. And I teach a class on mythology and I just started realizing, man, this guy has a lot of talents and a lot of knowledge that's been completely overlooked. And in many ways, the education system has defined him in a certain way, kind of boxed him in and forced him to be something he's not. And in the whole process, he's taken on this really negative self-identity he, you know, doesn't see himself as smart or effective or having many capacities or anything like that. And so then I just decided, you know, I, I really need to help him understand that he does have some talents here. So I invited him to be part of a different class, like this upper level class that I teach where there's no lectures and 
no textbooks and, and no grades. And basically the whole class works together and everybody, you know, works on their weaknesses, but also gets to leverage their strengths to create something really great together. And, and in that class, we move into a retirement community and they actually study the retirement community. So he moved in and with his game making capacities, we decided to go ahead and, and make a game. And so we had, you know, people who are good at video, people who are good at audio, people who are good with photography, people who are really good interviewers. And we put all those people together and basically created a story where you play as somebody who has Alzheimer's and you walk into the retirement community, you have all these memories come back to you. And all the memories are based on real memories from people that we interviewed at the retirement community. And that was like a year and a half ago. We've got most of that game put together just in the four months of that semester, which apparently is really amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, I went to a game makers conference and everybody I talked to was just shocked that we were able to put it together that fast. And now we're still tweaking it and probably going to make it into like a virtual reality experience, you know, with like Google Cardboard or sort of virtual reality goggles of some kind. So it's been a really amazing experience. And to see David, David was the, the sleeper, to see him blossom and go from somebody who was just always really down on himself to somebody who felt like he had a real gift to give. That was really special. Usually when we hear stories like the sleeper, where I thought you were going initially, was that he's not asleep anymore, that you transformed something about your teaching, that you were able to reach him in some new way that woke him up. And instead, the way that I described it when I was describing the video, when I recommended it on blog posts, said, it's about really an awakening within you as a teacher. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because he doesn't stop sleeping, at least not in that class, correct? So well, how did <laughs> well, yeah. you wake up? How did, how did he wake you up? Well, so that story sort of is almost a parable of a larger thing that was happening at that time. And that was that it wasn't just him that I was having lunch with. I was having lunch with lots of students. And the bigger backdrop of that was that I was nearing 40 And when I started teaching in my late 20s, it was really easy to relate to students. As I was in my late 30s, it was much more difficult. And I found myself angry at students. So that that moment when I'm angry at David is sort of standing in as being angry at all students. I was angry at them for sleeping in my class or not showing up or not doing the assignments, not putting everything into it. And I was really angry, I would say. I mean, looking back on it, I just felt like, man, what is wrong with these kids these days? I just felt like they're so entitled and think they can just do nothing and and get by. And I'd actually hear that a lot, you know, that word getting by, and it just would upset me so much. This idea that you can sort of get by, you know, by doing this or get by by doing that. And I thought, this is not about getting by, it's about changing who you are, you know, and get so mad. So then I started just, I thought, man, I'm just so disconnected. I need to start getting to know my students again. So I just had open lunches. And the first five are probably the most, that, the ones that stick out in my mind the most. And then the rest, you know, I did it for years. I still do them today. And I'm sure I've had hundreds of lunches by now with students. And there are just these key moments that add up to a total revision in my mind about who students are and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And that actually leads the way toward Life 101, the podcast I'm creating, because 
after hearing all these stories, I thought, you know, faculty need to hear these stories. They need to know these complexities. And it's, it's not something where I can just give you a list of things. Like, let me tell you how students are and then give you a list of five things. Instead, it's, it's more about understanding the richness and complexity and all the stories that are unfolding in every little life that's before you. And it's really hard to just say what that is. But once you start talking to students, it becomes like a feeling. And that feeling comes with you when you come into the classroom. And suddenly you're not just staring out at a bunch of anonymous faces who can quickly anger you by being disengaged. But instead you're looking out at a sea of stories and you know that each one is complex and each person is doing their best given the circumstances and they're uh, trying to make a good life. And the world is very confusing and overwhelming and all those things, you know, (laughs) and you, for whatever reason, you guys have been thrown into the same room together and you might as well make the most of that, you know, that your paths have crossed. I guess the bigger shift is sometimes it was me versus them. And sometimes it was them loving me and like thinking I was a great performer. But regardless, there was a separation, whether it was a positive or negative one. And the transformation came when I started to see, you know what, we're all just trying to figure this out. <laughs> you know, like, And that there are many different circumstances in which I would be the student and they would be the teacher. Mm-hmm. And I started kind of seeking those spaces out. So I just took my first violin lesson from a student, you know, and that was, that was really fun. And that is not just that, right? There's also big life lessons to be learned and relearned as we all try to make a life worth living. So that then is also kind of where Life 101, the podcast comes in is the idea is that we're all sort of enrolled in Life 101 and nobody's good enough to be the teacher. We're all students here. And now and then we get to teach each other a few things. And when you listen to the first episode, you know, you hear me doing these crazy things with students. Like I climb buildings, I go to a frat party, I go dancing in the college bar district. And there are these great moments where there's this flip, you know, and the the student becomes the teacher. It happens over and over again throughout the first episode. My favorite one, of course, is my dance teacher, Ming Shin, this Chinese international student who teaches me how to dance. And I think this actually shows what I mean by the depth of this and what's really to be learned is that it's not that I didn't know the moves. It's not that I didn't know how to move my hands and my, my legs and my arms. It's that I didn't have the courage and capacity to move them in that particular moment. And uh, he sort of gave me that the wisdom and helped craft the situation into such a way that I could blossom, you know, as a dancer. <laughs> so... I absolutely loved picturing you dance. I don't even actually ever want to see you dance because I love the picture in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'm just what you created so many incredible, vivid pictures in my mind through that, that absolutely beautiful work of art that you put together. And this is one of the songs that you include in the podcast is called we well it's funny because you said that you thought that they were saying teach me how to boogie which is completely what I thought they were saying too until you mentioned it it's teach me how to doogie yes doogie right doogie yeah Yeah. 
And I loved every song that you played. Some of them really went back to my college days. I think you and I are about the same age. I think I'm five years older or something. But the whole closing time, I forgot who the artist is of closing time, but some of the music would take me back to my college days. And then some of it clearly connects with today's college students. I was playing this song to my students and... (laughs) I had no idea it would elicit such a reaction because they'd come in the class and they'd look to try to figure out where the source of the music was because they couldn't actually believe I was playing this song. (laughs) And I I asked later on, is there like curse words or something? And apparently it's a big dance, like it was a dance craze or something. There's a dance that goes with it or something. (laughs) Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about how you put the music together? How much of it was the students that are working with you on the project and how much of it was you? I'm just curious. That first episode is all me. Every microsecond of that is me. And just threw myself into learning something new, you know, trying to do a podcast. And I mean, it took me like six months to learn how to do it and then edit it and piece it all together. And that, so that first one is all me. And it's really designed to get students excited about the project as well as faculty with the idea that then maybe there would be some follow-ups done by students or faculty so that it wouldn't just be me producing in the long run. It would be other people as well. And it definitely worked. You know, I now have like 35 student volunteers. I have a line of students waiting to be interviewed or willing to take me on my next adventure. So there's a lot of stuff in production and there's a lot of people interested and we're not sure yet how quickly we'll actually be able to get another thing out because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just hard to piece together a really good story. But every day I'm doing an interesting interview. So suddenly those lunchtime talks I had with students are now in studio. They're recorded. They're analyzed. They're, and I'm doing all of that. You know, this is really still mostly my project, but there are some students that I'm training who are involved in side projects and, and things like that. So it'll grow into more of a balanced student-faculty thing, but right now it's pretty much just my project, and the first episode is all my work. The song choices actually were all all mine, except for the fact that a lot of those are just things that came up during the night, you know, so I'm just walking through spaces and trying to learn how to dance and going to different bars, and those are just the songs that we're playing, and it was sort of bizarre how appropriate they were, you know, throughout the night, so if you listen to the first episode... I'm constantly analyzing the lyrics of the songs and they seem to always be strangely appropriate to what's happening. The other one was the Eminem song, Lose Yourself. And I'll just play a little bit in case people have heard it or because these lyrics were just priceless in terms of you only get one shot (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just that that sort of tenacity to get what, what it is that you want and just go for it. so great that's one from my youth that yeah it really and just as a plug for the podcast you have to listen if you're listening right now because ming shen the chinese international student actually does it acapella and it's amazing <laughs> you know to hear him to hear him do it i couldn't remember his name of course he stands out so much to me as a character but in the 
credits for the show for that first episode of Life 101, you say acoustic and then Mingshin, is that correct? And I thought yeah. I was looking for it on the internet. Apparently you haven't, because <laughs> what comes up is your podcast. He doesn't, he hasn't gone like full school on YouTube yet or anything. <laughs> No, huh? <laughs> as a solo artist, no. that was so much fun. Though I loved hearing and that he, no, he learned did. English that way, right? Yeah, and that just came out during the interview. You know, we were just doing the interview, and he started telling me how he learned English by watching YouTube videos, and particularly watching rap videos. And then he just stopped and he said, "You know, the first song I learned, I could sing a little bit for you." And he just started singing it, and it was <laughs> just so appropriate. And then that led us into this big discussion because I didn't get this into this in the podcast, but when I was his age, that song was brand new and I was coming into the job market. So I was about to go on stage at Kansas state here to, to try to get the job. And I had to go in front of 400 students and give a lecture. And they were essentially going to vote on who got the job. And that song was my anthem <laughs> for that whole preparation. You know, I was, I just constantly thought about, okay, I've got to lose myself. I only get one shot. I only have one opportunity, all that. So it was all playing there in my head. And then to hear him reflect on how it meant something to him at the same age, you know, he, he comes to K-State basically at the same age, but as a student from China and how, you know, here he is abroad in a very different place. And this, the, it was really powerful, you know, cause there's words in there like, he opens his mouth, but the words won't come out, you know, and, and that, that lyric is so powerful for him as a student who's struggling to speak English. It was just a really beautiful interview and really made the night seem even more special, you know, to have been sort of shared that moment with him where he taught me how to dance and then get to interview him later and hear this whole backstory that in so many ways connected to my own backstory. It's really great. This is the time in the show where we each get to give some recommendations and I'm going to recommend things that are really related to this episode. I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some of the songs that you have in the episode that I really do think the lyrics just are magnificent and worth going to listen to, even if it's not people's necessarily their style of music. It's really some masterful lyrics. And I'm also going to recommend, of course, that they go and listen to the first episode of Life 101 and then take their first assignment from you, Mike, to go and try something new. And, and you'll, lo- you'll know that you're learning something new if you're incredibly uncomfortable. And if you're not incredibly uncomfortable, you should probably pick something a little bit harder because <laughs> it's really, really tough. And as Mike said, it just is amazing how it can change our teaching when we put ourselves in the role of learner. Mike, what do you have to recommend to people today? I'll do similar ones, but slightly different. So one is go check out, I also am blanking on the creator of Closing Time right now, but he mm-hmm. did a little show. If you look up Closing Time, The Real Meaning, Yep. He explains the real meaning of closing time in, in sort of a funny way, and it's really cool. So that's a good thing to watch. And then I would also recommend a little TED Talk that is just called Try Something New for 30 Days, and it's three minutes long. And it's a guy who started trying all these different things and how it changed his life. And along with that, I'll just mention there's a really popular bestseller right now called The Power of Habit. basically gets into the science of of what it's like when you try something new or when you break a habit and you break sort of the routines that you're normally in. And it describes these things called keystone habits, which are things that can essentially 
sort of jolt your your brain or your your entire routine in such a way that trying new things actually becomes easier. So the first new thing you try might be difficult. Like say you want to take on exercise every day. But if you start exercising every day, that might actually be a keystone habit that then makes everything else you want to try a lot easier. And that's been my experience is that once I started trying new things, it actually became a lot easier to try other things. And I would not worry about time because the way, the one thing I learned about trying new things since I've been trying new things is that the way we calculate time is completely wrong. We tend to think of time as this fixed asset and how can I try something new? I already don't have enough time. How can I fit 30 minutes more into my day? The real asset that we need is energy. And you'll find all kinds of time where you're just less than motivated, not moving 100%. And that ends up being lost time. But when you're trying something new, there's something that just inspires you and, and elevates your energy. And suddenly you start finding time like in the cracks and you suddenly feel like you have a lot more time than you ever thought you did. So just give it a shot. Just 28 days. Life is too short to not experiment. So take four weeks and just dedicate yourself to doing something new every day for that, those four weeks and see what happens. I bet that you'll find that you actually do have the time and that you actually have maybe more time than you thought. Well, Mike, I will tell you, I said this before we started recording, you are just someone I have admired so much. And what an exciting day to get to talk to you and hear about your teaching. And you have so much wisdom. And I just really appreciate you sharing that with this community. All right. Thanks a lot. Mike and I both mentioned the song Closing Time during the episode, and it seems like a really fitting way to close our episode together. So I will break with tradition. And this one is dedicated to Mike as I know it reminds both of us of times in our past and for him times in his present and probably times in his future as well. Thanks so much to Mike for joining me today on teaching in higher ed. And thanks to all of you for listening. I hope you'll take our challenges seriously and get in touch on Twitter and let us know what you're trying out. And all of Mike's contact information will be available on the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 118. And I'd love to hear from you as well. Find out what you're experimenting with. If you have ideas for future shows, as always, I welcome those at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And I also really request that if you are enjoying the show, that you can help others discover it by giving it a rating or review. It seems like a hard thing to do. It's actually not that hard. <laughs> Go on to iTunes or whatever service it is that you listen to the show. And there's a place where you can just click to give it some stars or to write your narrative feedback about it as well. Thanks so much for listening. I really enjoy connecting with so much of you, so many of you through email, through Twitter, and hearing about your journey and becoming more effective at facilitating learning. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.